everybody, and welcome back to A Journey Through Stock Aitken Waterman, the podcast that is working its way through every single produced by Mike Stock, Matt Aitken, and Pete Waterman, in order. I'm Gavin Scott from pop music website chartbeats.com.au, in case you'd forgotten, and my co-host is Matthew Demby. It's nice to be properly back, isn't it, Matt? It is, not only back with the podcast, but back here in Australia. I had a great time in the UK visiting the Hit Factory building and attending the I Should Be So Lucky musical. And what a way for this podcast to come back, because this is the episode I've been waiting for, literally from the very first day we imagined this show. That's a long wait, and it's one many of us have been anticipating, I think. Before we get stuck into episode 65, though, a quick reminder that you can connect with us on social media. Look for me at ChartBeatsAU on Instagram, Threads, and Facebook. I'm not doing Twitter anymore. And you can find me by searching my name, Matthew Denby, on X and Threads. And I've also got a YouTube channel where Gavin and I discuss the stock Aitken Waterman stage musical in depth. Please feel free to drop me a message at any of those places. I love chatting with Saw fans. And if you want even more Saw-related goodness, you can subscribe for the podcast's bonus material at chartbeats.com.au slash saw. More on that at the end. So, when we paused our journey a few months ago, we'd reached the end of 1990, which was a period of great change for the Hit Factory. We might have mentioned that one or two times. And things continued in that vein in 1991, didn't they, Matt? Yeah, that's right. There are plenty of new sounds and great records ahead in 1991. Three of my personal top 20 best saw records of all time came out that year, but there's plenty of upheaval and change as well. We're going to see the departure of some major names, including Matt Aitken himself, bringing a dramatic end to one of the greatest production trios of all time. Yes, the most significant change of all as saw became swerp or something. So there is a lot still to talk about, some massive highs and a little bit of drama, and perhaps no higher high than the first single produced by Stock Aiken Waterman to be released in 1991. That's so right, coming out in the UK on Jan 21, 1991, and in Australia on Feb 18, it was the third single from Kylie Minogue's Rhythm of Love album, What Do I Have to Do? Now, if you know me at all, and I like to think we know each other a little bit by now, listeners, then you'll know What Do I Have To Do has pride of place at the top of my all-time list of favourite songs. And I know it's also an important track for Matt, but we're going to share our personal connections with this song a bit later. For now, let's trace the history of What Do I Have To Do, which went through a few versions before coming out as a single, as you said, in early 1991. And for this, I have to thank John Palmer, Phil Harding's book editor and social media manager and all-round saw guru. He provided a really comprehensive account of all the stages that What Do I Have To Do went through. Do yourself a favour and check out Phil's book and his recently released podcast series. Okay, on with the What Do I Have To Do story. Yeah, this song was originally conceived as the follow-up to Better The Devil You Know, and what a brilliant one-two punch that would have made. A very edgy, rave-inspired mix was first played by Pete Waterman on his Liverpool radio show, where it quite rightly created a major stir among fans. 
Phil Harding and Ian Kerno, who we'll hear from a bit later, recall receiving What Do I Have to Do to Work On at the same time as Step Back in Time. But whereas Step Back came together relatively easily, the same was not the case for What Do I Have to Do. At the stage when Pete Waterman played it on air, it was very club influenced, with this track being of particular inspiration. That was, of course, Hardcore Uproar by Together. We already know what an influence that record was on PWL, as the team looked to update their sound for the 90s. Back in episode 62, we talked about how it was the inspiration for Wow Wow Na Na by Grand Plaz. A batch of mixes were done at that early stage by Tony King, and it was one of those that Pete played, jumping the gun a bit since the mixes weren't release ready. Indeed, they weren't released at the time at all, although a handful eventually came out on digital platforms. Let's take a listen to one of the Billy the Fish mixes. Billy the Fish Mix really was a radical dance rebrand. It's moving on in one giant leap away from the kind of radio pop that Kylie was known for doing at the time. And that's even taking into account the maturing of her sound with Better the Devil You Know. It's a gutsy mix for a mass market pop act, but I'm sure they probably thought it was too risky to be the main single mix at the time. And so it would seem that, just as Better the Devil You Know was chosen over the more club-influenced Things Can Only Get Better, Step Back in Time was picked instead of these incarnations of What Do I Have to Do? And as we said in the Step Back in Time episode, it was probably a good call to go with something more pop at that stage, but a song this good wouldn't be relegated to the background for too long. Next up, What Do I Have to Do was mixed again by Harding and Kerno for inclusion on the Rhythm of Love album, and this to me is the ultimate version of the song. I guess we should hear a bit of it. Story time. When Rhythm of Love was released in late 1990, for whatever reason, I wasn't able to go and buy it on the day it came out, but my friend did. And when he got back home from the store, which was probably Power Station Records in Bankstown, he played me bits of the album down the phone, just like Pete Waterman apparently did to Kylie when playing her What Do I Have To Do. So my friend would have skipped over Devil and Step Back and started at track three, which, as we all know, is What Do I Have To Do. When I heard that opening fanfare that we just played for you, I was mesmerised. My friend kept going through the album and I kept saying, go back to track three, go back to track three. 
I was hooked. It just blasted into the song. And when I got the album later in the week, I played and played What Do I Have to Do? The thing I loved was that that opening burst of energy just doesn't let up until the end. It's relentless. It's euphoric. And since that moment, it has been my favourite song of all time by any artist ever. Story over. Well, I immediately loved it when I first heard it too. And to this day, What Do I Have to Do remains my favourite Kylie song of all time. I can't overstate how important this record is to me. Nothing else comes close in her catalogue and there are so many happy memories attached to it. As a fan since 87, I consider this her absolute high watermark as a dance pop star. And it's a shining example of the brilliance of Stock Aitken Waterman's songwriting and production and the magic of the PWL mixed teams. Everything about it is transcendent. The chorus, the chords, that very contemporary and cool house piano, and of course, the string sounds, which can still sometimes give me serious goosebumps all these decades later. Mm. Better the Devil You Know gets the mainstream kudos as Kylie's great grown-up moment, but many hardcore fans recognise this as her true apex from this era. It's such a common opinion among my generation of Kylie devotees, it doesn't surprise me anymore when so many people put this right at the very top of their Kylie lists. Okay, so we both consider this song to be a masterpiece, as do plenty of other Saw and Kylie fans, as you said. But you might recall that the guys who wrote the song and the other now classic singles from Rhythm of Love weren't as enthusiastic as us about this body of work. In fact, I was shocked, no pun intended, to get what amounted to a, yeah, they're okay, response from Mike Stock when we discussed them. I was like, what? Let's go to Mike now to hear his thoughts on what do I have to do? Can you understand why people love it? Because it is very well regarded and and i'll let you in on a secret it is my all-time favorite song by anyone <laughs> no pressure to give me a good answer no well uh, look there's a kind of a sultry verse going on there which completely gets sort of obliterated by the chorus so i you know I, I, although i i do love it i think it's it's full of bells and whistles of sound effects you know yeah i mean look if it look everyone is somebody's favourite. So For me, there's a real sense of euphoria to the song, and I guess that's the chorus. Is that the intent, that it's euphoric? Yeah, yeah, of course. And the chord structure of that chorus is a little bit unusual. It sounds like you know what it's doing, but when you try and play it, you realise you don't, because the bass line isn't necessarily the roots of the chords that are going up. But, yeah, and, of course, we put it... Th- things in music were starting to be like that, that you could do this uh, uh, sort of a some kind of rising tone through a section or sound effects were coming into the use because people could sample whatever they wanted and turn them into sound effects. And we do it a lot now, an awful lot now, but back before this period, you had to make your own sound. Your own dynamic was how you structured the song, not so much relying on, you know, a a fire engine or something. I mean, the single version did add even more, you know, the what's that sound and and all the kind of clutter. Whereas to me, the album version is is cleaner. Uh, I suppose the album version is cleaner, but you'll have to excuse me because I can't remember it now. I, I haven't listened to it for ages. I only ever hear the single, you know. Uh, I've, I ought to go back to the album and have a listen. Yes, that's your homework. To confirm your view there, which sounds to me like it could be right. While the Rhythm of Love singles are adored by Kylie's fan base, the tracks appear to have some different associations for the Saw team. 
The rise of harder dance music on the charts was clearly something that caused some resentments and creative clashes at PWL. Mike Stock told Classic Pop magazine, The more club-oriented and less song-based things got, the more difficult I found it. I spent a long time with mixers, literally trying to save the song from being drowned out by the sound effects, noises and drum beats, unquote. Matt Atkin also told the magazine, Mike didn't come at things from the dance perspective. It was an alien culture to him in many respects. The UK techno thing was coming up and we took a lot of cues from that for the third album. The charts were littered with bedroom artists making these one-offs. More than anything, the sound of the drums affected us. Everyone was using the Roland 909. Our rhythm track started to sound out of place. We struggled to make it sound more like what everybody else was doing at the time, but we got there in the end. Added Pete Waterman, Everybody lost the plot in the 90s a bit. It wasn't about songs anymore. It was about wearing silly hats. Ah, the return of the silly hats conspiracy. Someone should write a PhD on the importance of hats, good and bad, at PWL. But for now, let's hear some more from Matt Aitken on What Do I Have To Do? Then What Do I Have To Do did end up coming out. So earmarked as second single, ended up coming out as third single. Where where are you getting that from? Well, just the fact that Pete played it before. So you know how he had his Liverpool radio show and he would often play early versions. Oh, I've got the brand new Lonnie Gordon and he'd play something. Okay, fine. Yeah, well, okay, I'll take your word for it because, I mean, I, I certainly wasn't listening to Radio Merseyside on my weekend. So there's there's talks about it's like a it's called the Billy the Fish mix. He played that, and then it never ended up coming out. Do you, do you know what Billy the Fish is? No, tell me. Uh, there was a sort of satirical grown-up uh, cartoon like Beanard Dandy called Viz that our engineer Mark McGuire started bringing in, which is quite rude and quite. Uh, but one of the characters was a goalkeeper called Billy the Fish. It's very esoteric, but he was a fish who could just sort of hover there on the goal line and miraculously save goals, even though he didn't have any arms. <laughs> Pete used to come up with the titles for these mixes. They were often quite weird and wonderful, weren't they? Yeah. So, yeah, so that version was kicking around. What do you remember about What Do I Have To Do coming together? I would say that what we ended up with, there was a track that we, we took in big, heavy influences uh, for this from. But it was very fragmented and, and quite quite brutally rhythmic. And it the first mix that you've played to me, which I think is the the, the one that you said Pete played on the radio, that's what we had been intended. But it was too dangerous, I think. And when the mix came through, the ba- the kick drum was sort of really loud and sort of flattened it all out. And I, I think what we were trying to do was p- perhaps a bit too dangerous, you know. <laughs> But, uh, you know, it turned out all right. But the kick drum was hellish loud, wasn't it? It's a version of a track that you did that was to, you know, you were pushing it as well. It wasn't just Kylie and Terry going, we want to be more grown up or whatever. It, it was you guys going, hey, look, listen to this. We were certainly listening to, you know, there was a lot of 12 inches were landing in the studio from various people, you know, saying this is really flying. No idea why. Just have a listen. And I, I get the feeling that we... Uh, listened to something that we thought was really good and said, uh, okay, let's write a song right around this. But the the real spur for this is the chord riff in the verse. It's quite unusual in, in, in the way the chords are structured there. And I think we thought we had something that was really good that was unusual, and I think that was the thing that uh, spurred us on. I mean, it's not a great title, is it? What do I have to do? Mm. 
So I think it must have been that that was driving it through. Okay, so you had the early version of it. That didn't end up coming out. It was then reworked into the album version, which is, I guess, a lot more commercial. Were you happy with that album version? Yeah, pretty decent. You just need a little bit, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, really, didn't it? A little, a little bit of sharpening up. The album version's a little bit loose. It's not particularly clubby. It's it's a little bit loose. I mean, the, the the single version is just a little bit. Everything's a little bit sharper and a little bit tighter. I think. Now, what about the um the is that a nod to delight and grooves in the heart? No, I don't think so. No, you mean the swooshing noises? Yeah. Well, no. What we what I've done is the. Um, there's a drum sample that goes uh, it's it's one sample. When I was messing around with that, uh, I made it into and that worked really well. But it kind of needed something else with it. I, I can't remember why we reached for the uh, the swoosh noise, but it's uh, it was just another element that made and that sort of pause before the chorus is it really works really well. I think. Well, it builds, doesn't it? I mean, it, yeah. it, I've used the word euphoric. Oh, you said, is it the most euphoric track that we ever did? And you're probably right. It would be up there, wouldn't it? Because that delay, it's like not giving instant gratification. Get your hands in the air. It's coming, yeah. Which I guess probably isn't something you did all the time. You you would kind of launch into that chorus. No, because we'd, we'd been given license to sort of go into these areas and... Uh, it was a nice break from what we've been doing, I think. When I spoke to Mike, he said, better than you know, Step Back in Time are pop songs with a dance club feel. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's absolutely right. And what do I have to do in shock to club tracks that have elements of pop? Absolutely, absolutely. Care to expand on that at all? No, just at <laughs> all, really. I got the opinion from him that he didn't, he wasn't as big a fan of what do I have to do and shocked because of that. Yes, and I can readily see that because they're less songy. Where do you stand? Uh, what? Which which are better? No, they're all diff- they're all good for different reasons. I think. You know, if you're doing an album, you can't have every track doing exactly the same thing. You've got to have some variation. Did it bother you that things like what do I have to do and shocked didn't have as much song in them? No, not at all. You you don't mind that kind of thing? No. You set your compass for uh, Clubland, let's not overly song it. But Mike, Mike is tied more to the song. I mean, as a generality, yeah. But I think I think we were both happy sort of doing this uh, shtick. You know, bearing in mind we came from the high energy days where, you know, we were doing recording seven-minute versions of stuff. We, there are whole other records for things like Spin Me Round that never got used that are on the seven-minute version that we recorded. So we were quite used to experimenting with sounds over the beats, that you know, excluding the vocals. That wasn't uh, new to us. It was quite refreshing to get back to that because uh, we'd been in Song City for a long time. But the truth is, Shocked and What Do I Have to Do would not work unless they had the song on them because they're not pure enough as club tracks. They're a hybrid. Uh, you know, and Mike was absolutely right in, in, in what he said. For the first time ever. <laughs> <laughs> you realise that's going in. Someone else who can talk about what was going on in the studio at this point is engineer Peter Day. Here he is now. As we were moving away from the pop structure, if you like, from, you know, um, there's obviously still verse, bridge, chorus, verse, bridge, chorus, mid, late outros. However, um, you know, we've got much longer intros happening. 
Whereas before it was like, you know, it came from a, a Simon Cowell kind of influence where if you don't have the chorus at the start, you've got to make, you've got to wait for one minute 11 before you even chorus to know if you like, like the track. So that's why we have, you know, that's why we've got the chorus at the start a lot of the time. But obviously if you start on a dance track, a lot of the time you want to hear the groove before, you know, that first verse comes in or there's an introduction into that first verse. I think it possibly is where we started to get influenced by stuff being licensed in, not necessarily, you know, the... Who's the Dutch stuff that too we did unlimited. later on? Yeah, too unlimited. Not at that point, but we we were definitely looking at other records that were coming in and licensing other records. This track sounds good. This track sounds good. This track sounds good. And just like right, make a track like that, but obviously with a poppy element. Did you get the sense that Mike and Matt were happy pushing it? Did they get into it? It feels like possibly maybe Matt might have been more into it and and more pushing it than Mike. I mean, it's very difficult to you know talk for them, but. The thing for me is that they had an excellent vehicle. Kylie was the perfect package. You know, she was lovely. She looked fantastic. She had a massive audience, you know, all over the world. You know, so it was almost, this is the way I see it looking back. If you can retain that, if you like, that ball of fire that you've got there for as long as you can, then if you need to change the style and you need to adapt to basically keep that going, you know, and keep on working with her, then I think, I'm not sure if it was, I wouldn't say that it was reluctant. It was just a change of style. That's what was happening in dance music and, and in pop. You know, we weren't necessarily always complimentary about some of the other pop records that we were hearing going high in the chart because we just didn't understand why why they were so successful sometimes. There's obviously a reason why every record is a success, but it's not necessarily down to the song. That was always slightly difficult. You know, when you've got a well-structured, well-formulated song and then you've got a dance track which got hardly anything in it and hardly any chord structure you know why is that at number one so that was always some something that was difficult to get our head around i think can you remember any tracks oh i don't want to slag anything off <laughs> i'll go on well I'm, I'm i'm the things that come to my mind are that like quadraphonia yeah alternate and and that pure techno stuff and that pure like instrumentals off. I just remember a track called Take Me Into Insanity. Oh, yeah. And the backing vocals are out of tune with the lead vocal in the chorus, in choruses. And it's just like, when you're hearing something discordant and it's number one, you're like, as producers, what are they supposed to do? How are they supposed to make something if, you know, the public have decided that that's going to be a number one record? There's always a reason. Mr. Blobby went to number one because he had good advertising, so... I've always loved Insanity, but I can hear what Pete Day is saying about those vocals. At the time, I just loved all those rave and dance records. Listening to it back now, probably for the first time since the 90s, I do now hear just how rough and ready it is, which is very punk, I guess, and a big part of the appeal of the whole rave scene. Another appeal for rave fans was the drugs, which is not something that endeared the whole thing to Mike Stock. He said this to Classic Pop, We were just trying to make better quality dance music. By the 1990s, it was being made by people who were off their heads on ecstasy. They'd be fascinated with two notes going backwards and forwards. Hard to argue with that, eh, Gavin? Well, let's not argue. Let's move on to a topic that's more to Mike's liking. Vocals. Specifically, backing vocals, which are a huge part of what makes What Do I Have To Do so great. (laughs) 
Yes, okay, I'm reliving my 15-year-old experience by playing that intro over and over again. Right, well, if what do I have to do is a cake with many ingredients, let's call the backing vocals the icing. They're sweet and tasty, and they probably helped make the rest of this very clubby track a lot more palatable to pop fans. One of those backing vocalists, Miriam Stockley, is going to join us now to tell us something I never realised about the backing vocals on What Do I Have to Do? Kylie was in the studio the one time and she came into the booth with us and sang. She asked if she could do that. She actually came into the studio with us. Yeah, well, I think what Mike started doing was taking some of the backing vocals that we'd done on the on the choruses and then moving them up to the front of the song or putting them in the middle of the song and featuring them. That was that was kind of his signature. Because they didn't like to, they didn't write many middle eights. Mm, and often no. there'd be something like that featured as a middle, I mean, that was the intro, but sometimes it would yeah, be backing vocals featured as a middle eight. Correct, but we didn't actually record those as featured vocals. They were normally taken from something that we recorded as harmonies underneath the chorus. And someone somewhere, whether it was Mike or whether it was whoever mixed it, went, oh, that sounds good, I'll take that. Yep, yep. And it's only Michael said, that, you know, he, he was pretty much hands-on. Even though um, I have to say that Pete Hammond did a lot of that mixing stuff, uh, most of it. You know, and once again, I think they got to know Mike's style, so they would do exactly as he would do. You can hear more from Miriam in the bonus material, specifically talking about her guest vocal on Only You by Praise, which was a hit in the UK around the same time as What Do I Have To Do? Next up, though, Mae McKenna is going to talk more about Kylie coming into the studio to record those BVs with her and Miriam. That was unusual. Kylie being in the studio with you and Miriam. Yes. And that was at her request, do you think? Yes, oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think Kylie was beginning to assert herself a little bit more as an artist and because she was so young when she first came along. So she was obviously very malleable to what she was being asked to do, not and which worked for her and, and made her an even huger star. But she was a grow, growing up, you know, and she wanted to have a bit more input. And so she came in and she, as I said, she did backing vocals with us, which was was really good. And we managed to get a great sound together and we managed to, I say, break away from the formula a little bit, which is what she was looking to do. Instead of doing one line, everybody singing it, next line, everybody singing it, we split in three and then we doubled it and then we swapped parts as well. So you still got a blend of all the voices and all the parts but done in a different way, approached in a different way. And I think you, you hear a bit more of the individual character of the voices that way, which isn't always what Mike wanted. So, But nonetheless, he was happy with that. Over time, as I say, things could evolve. And did you get a sense of how that went down with Mike and Matt? Were they okay with that? <laughs> well, I think they probably had to be. <laughs> um, I mean, I think they were happy with how, with how it turn, turned out. But um, generally, even with Pete, though, I think his, his philosophy was, this is our sound, we are the stars, we'll be here after the, the artists. And that was the case with some of the artists. You know, some artists really were pop artists with a limited life. And if they start to get too demanding, it probably doesn't work too well. But for other artists, that's not the case. They do have potential to go on and have long careers and then they, they have to evolve because they can't stay pop princesses or princes forever. They have to mature and, and take an audience with them if they want to have a long career. 
And let's go now to Pete Day again, who shares his memories of how Kylie mixed up the backing vocal process here. I mean, we always had backing vocals. We started to feature more of the backing vocals, I think. Kylie's lead was out there, it was loud and proud, but there tended to be a bit more arrangement in what the backing vocals were doing. They were always important, but I felt that they were having more of a role, which was which was good. Well, May and Miriam said, I think it was Kylie went into the studio with them for the first yes. time. Do you remember that happening? I do. I do remember that. Yeah. Because um, she wanted to be more involved. And obviously, you know, she wasn't necessarily going to go and uh, pick up a guitar or play keyboard. So, she, you know, but she knew about vocals and arrangements. So, yes, she was in there. Um, I would say that I'm not sure if everyone is aware of how actually quickly we did these, because I believe I'm not sure on this album we would do three tracks. We would do three vocal tracks in a day, if not four. And then again, for the backing vocals, we would do three or four. So, you know, if we had Kylie for the three or four days, that was good going. So we'd possibly have her, uh, Kylie, come in and do the leads on three tracks. And then, you know, the backing vocals would be the next next day or even the evening. It was all done very, very quickly. And she was a great singer as well. You know, I don't think she gets the credit a lot of the time for, you know, how good she is. And she was taking more of a command, if you like, rather than being asked or told what to do. She was going, right, I'm going you know, obviously Mike would be there as the producer because I was sat next to Mike. Um, you know, saying, right, we, we want, you know, this is how we want this to work, et cetera, et cetera. And it would be a discussion, more of a discussion as opposed to in the, you know, earlier albums. It was just like, right, she would be almost, um, yeah, okay, fine, we'll, we'll do this, you know, not necessarily being uh, completely aware of her own talent, if you like, you know. Uh, yeah, she was definitely taking more of a command. Did you get the sense that Mike responded well to that as well? I think, well, it's difficult, isn't it? Um, he'd probably be putting out slightly out of his comfort zone because he had his way of doing things. You know, and he wanted to stay doing those. So he was being pushed out of his comfort zone to do things differently. So I wouldn't say he did. I wouldn't, you know, um, again, I don't want to talk for him, but, you know, it's not that he would dislike it. He's just doing doing things that he didn't, wouldn't normally do or wouldn't prefer to do, if you like, rather than dislike. I think dislike is probably a, it's too strong a word. When What Do I Have To Do finally hit the stores as the third single from Rhythm of Love, Kylie had to defend the choice to smash hits, which wanted to know what was happening with her much-publicised US tracks. A lot of the album hype in the press had centred around her writing trips to America, yet here she was releasing another Saw track, and at a time when their sound was increasingly under fire. Kylie told the magazine, Everybody loves the song and they all wanted to see it as the next single. I love it too, but I hope to find the time to do some more recording this year as well. I may do some more writing in America, which may lead to another recording there, unquote. Well, that wasn't to be, as we'll see soon enough as 91 progresses, but how right Kylie was to love this song. Let's hear more of that sublime single mix. The single version was once again mixed by Harding and Kernow, who threw everything they had at this version, while also stripping it back. This is a brilliant single mix. It retains all the sugar you'd want from a pop single, while still giving plenty of time and space to the dance floor. The samples really telegraph that they're going in a cooler direction, and everything about this mix is ecstatic. I always liken What Do I Have To Do to I Don't Want To Get Hurt by Donna Summer, in that both album versions are perfection and both received a significant single remix. 
Now, however, whereas I wasn't that big a fan of the single version of I Don't Want to Get Hurt, 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 I do really like what was done to What Do I Have to Do. I don't enjoy it as much as the album version because that would be impossible. And I feel like because some of the more euphoric elements were paired back, the single mix lacks that unstoppable momentum. It doesn't take me to quite the same high. But in its own right, it works really well, and I will happily listen to it if it comes on. The snatched dialogue samples from Sam Kinison et al. add a different dimension, and we'd be hearing that type of thing everywhere. It was almost like the new, woo, yeah, to have some snatch of dialogue in a PWL song. At this point, let's check in with Phil Harding and Ian Kerno to hear their thoughts on the various mixes of What Do I Have To Do that they did. One of my strong memories of you know what I have to do was again Pete wanting to uh, wanting it specifically aimed at the clubs you know and again we've programmed more than just came down on the original to to do that but the important thing was that Pete wanted it mixed you know extended mix first and and I remember being in the studio thinking because obviously things were still analog at that time you know I'd be cutting a half inch tape on repeated sections to get us to uh to build up a, a, a 12 inch and Pete didn't want to go into anything to do with the song. You know, if you listen to the 12 inch, I, I can't remember the exact time, but at, at least two minutes. And he, and he kept saying, I don't want the DJ to know who it is. So the, so the white labels quite possible with, with uh, what do I have to do? Quite possibly a set of white labels went out with, with no name on it, you know, so that hopefully the DJs would, would put it on get really get into the the club elements of the intro build up and only when you finally hear Kylie's voice oh god it's a Kylie record <laughs> it seemed it at the time and it seems it recalling it a bit desperate you know to fall the DJs into this is not you're going to discover it's a Kylie record but honestly it's not as poppy as you might have expected and uh, a bit like they did with Roadblock where where no one knew who it was how well that worked I don't know how popular it was in the clubs, whether it did that job. But certainly it was very different that Ian and I were, were as involved as we're describing, because generally with the Kyler Records, it was, from our point of view, you know, all recorded upstairs and either Pete Hammond or Dave Ford mixed it. And we were generally, you know, quite uninvolved for a lot of the uh, three or four albums. It felt like it was like, here you go, boys, here's some Kylie, have a go. Shovel it at you and see what we can come up with. A lot of goes were taken up, what do I have to do? And general unhappiness in, in however many mixes and however many goes we had. And, and maybe step back in time at the end of the day was the easier choice. For me, what, what do you have to do is like, uh, I don't know, there's, there's, there's something about the, the build-up of the intro of it that's not, not very musical. Do you know what I mean by that, Ian? It's sort of uh, some of the elements on it with a keyboard that never seems to change. At the beginning, is like it is what it is. But personally, to me, I found it quite quite annoying. Yeah, uh, <laughs> there's a few of those in there. The scenario where it's here's a track, do a twelve inch. Oh, now we like the twelve inch. Now make it a bit more saner for the main version. Or oh, now it's a bit saner. Can we have a few bit more wacky bits for the single, please? And that's yeah, that gestation makes complete sense. The one you've got down as single remix contains an awful lot of the same elements as the album version. But it's a definitely a different balance. I mean, there's a tom-tom missing out of the snare fill into the chorus, for example. And all the I think the vocal locks and stuff we added on that on that main version on the single remix, that was us. And it just sounds like a 
are better mastered and better mixed than the album version. The, the single version sounds clear and bright and, and well-defined, whereas the, the album version maybe didn't have as much emphasis, much time spent on it in mastering or something, I don't know, or it's YouTube, you know, fuzzing it up. So to me, that drives more than the single version. The single version almost pulls it back a bit. There's more space, more space, yeah. less drive. Sound better on a big system, whereas the other one sound better on a radio, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I think I think what we're hearing there, you know, I was saying I was a bit annoyed by those incessant keyboards, uh, you know, which is on the album version. You know, I'm pretty sure the first 12-inch was done from that and, and – the album version is like a radio version of that. And either Pete asked or Ian and I had the opportunity that we've reviewed that and just, as you're saying, Gavin, eased off it a bit and, and made it sort of less intense. That almost sounds like the, the, the keyboards, which I do quite like, but they do quite annoy me, <laughs> on the <laughs> on the album version are almost not played, almost like step sequencer. Yeah. You know, for people that understand the difference between step sequencer and playing it in. You know, almost like a robot's programmed it. It sounds like two different things. Yeah, like one, one chord, then the next chord is a different different overdub. So rather than being played, da 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 it's da-da-da, and it da 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 answer it. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's deliberately quite unnatural. Uh, and I think when we've come back to it and reviewed it on the single, we've we've taken some of those elements away. That's what can hear there on the, the keyboards. So not yeah. really doing that pattern so much on the single mix, are they? Mm, that's right. Whether that was our decision or someone asking us to do that, I, I can't be sure, Gavin. Could that have been a request from Kylie, maybe? I don't know. Not not to us directly, but I just wonder if part of her change may have triggered, oh, that's a little bit sort of forceful. Can we just smooth it out a bit? I don't know. Pretty safe to say that uh, it's a similar set of elements to Step Back in Time, where we've <clears throat> what you're hearing is is probably our remix version, as it were, with uh, reprogramming drums and bass and putting extra samples in, a lot of the rest of it w w would be as recorded. Now, do you feel, to, I guess, to wrap up Step Back in Time and What Do I Have to Do, that your work warranted an additional production credit? <laughs> <laughs> Always. <laughs> Setting aside the fact of whether that was realistic and whether that would have been given, but given the things you're talking about, we did this and added this and this, blah, blah. That's additional production, right? Well, well, I was going to bring that. I was going to bring that subject up earlier, and I thought, well, it's probably not necessary to discuss it. But as you've asked the question, Gavin, <laughs> <laughs> we did, or certainly I did, ask Pete if Ian and I are doing this much work on the initial release, then our normal way of working, designed by Pete Tilly and David Howes, is a we get an additional production credit, and the reason you know we were amongst the first people in the eighties to come up with that credit no not just remix by but additional production as well because david house as the business affairs person said as soon as we insert the word production into the credits i can then insist on getting a royalty for you guys and and that was fantastic so you know uh, most of the remixes ian and i did you know mid to late 80s david house negotiated the contracts we, we would get a one percent royalty and and that's a system very much that we developed so so I said to Pete, well, surely we should be getting an additional production credit and, and a royalty because we're adding a lot of production elements to these initial versions. If it was just, you know, an initial versions come out and we're just doing an extra club remix, that's a different thing. And, uh, 
yeah, it was rejected both from from the credit and the business side. You've got to bear in mind that I've had would have had these sort of conversations with Pete before back on the first Dead or Alive album, and I've always been of the philosophy, you know, don't ask, you don't get. So I'll, I'll always ask for things and be prepared for an open conversation. And I said to Pete, even on the first Dead or Alive album, surely I should not necessarily credit, but be on some sort of royalty because I'm doing an amount of work here with with, with the band and, and, and the mixes that even half a point would be great. I'd also say it's about being valued as well. Well, well yes, absolutely. You know, if you're valued member of the team, that's the first mental position. And then once yes. you realise that, being valued, well, having some royalty is an example or a d- demonstration of how much you're valued. Yeah. But there seemed to be some understanding between Pete and Mike and Matt, which is understandable, <laughs> that, you know, they do their thing and they're not sharing it with it. Anyone, and that's why they would resist co-writing initially with Kylie as well. So, yeah. So, Ian, you you felt the same, that the amount of work you were doing was... Uh, I'm afraid so, yeah, yeah, definitely. On those two tracks, as I often say to people, Pete was a very fair person. It was like the answer was probably more along the lines, you know, I'm aware of what you're doing, guys. I'm aware you probably deserve the credit and everything else. Uh, and so therefore, along the line, he gets us to produce Celebration. And that's the comeback for myself and Ian. And, and, and Pete always did that along the line. He might, he might leave you sort of gasping for breath <laughs> at one point. <laughs> yeah, but, but, definitely. But, uh, you know, he, yeah. he's aware that later on, uh, once you realise, actually, if you stick with it and stick with the system, you'll be rewarded down the line. Yeah, there'd be some, he'd make sure you get some payback at the end. Yeah. He's aware of it, but I don't think his hands were tied. You know, I think his hands no, were exactly. tied. But he would never say, I'm I'm giving you this because I didn't give you that. It was just kind of... No, no. Understood. Yeah, it was, it, it didn't, didn't need to be said. So that was how good the understanding was between us. Yeah. My memories of this track are really heavily linked to dancing, and there's probably still no song that can get me off my chair faster than this one. Did you jump on a podium when you were out dancing, Matt? Always, Gavin, always. And I did even appear on a certain TV show a few years later, dancing on a podium at Three Faces, my only real claim to fame. Wow. Sadly, I had just turned 16 when this single came out, so my podium dancing days were still to come. I've got particular affection for the Pump and Mix, also known as the Pump and Poly Mix, and the Between the Sheets Mix, also known as the UK Mix, both of which were featured on the Australian CD single. Also on there was the instrumental, which really showed the sheer brilliance of the musical composition and the production. I played that particular CD to death. I still have it to this day, and probably no Kylie item holds so much nostalgic affection for me as this single does. CDs aren't the warmest of things, but I genuinely love and treasure that one. Yeah, for some reason those mixes have different names in the UK and Australia. Perhaps it was Mushroom trying to exert some control there. We'll use the UK names from here on in. The Pump and Polly mix is the longer version of Harding and Kerno's single mix, while the Between the Sheets mix was done by Pete Hammond around the same time, although his was more based on the album version. Let's take a listen to some of those two mixes now.
I can't get enough of that ascending synth sound that's so prominent on the Harding and Kernow mix. I couldn't love that anymore, really. It's one of my favourite features of the finished record. As beholden as I am to that album version, I do love Pete Hammond's Between the Sheets mix, and I'm also a fan of another Harding and Kernow mix titled the Extended LP Remix. No surprise there. And a few years later, Movers and Shakers remixed the track, just as they had with Better the Devil You Know, but we'll leave you to go and check that one out for yourselves online. Before we move on from the song itself, let's give the last word on what do I have to do, the song, to Kylie herself. No, don't get excited, it's just from her Ultimate Kylie interview disc. It's the next best thing we have to Kylie herself. That was, I think, after Step Back in Time, moving into What Do I Have to Do, we really found another gear for me. And I was growing up, the music was was moving on and becoming a little bit more mature, a little bit more influenced by club records. And I adored those songs. What Do I Have to Do, Shocked. They, they were just far more, for, more uh, dance-influenced, and that's what I was getting into at the time. Interestingly, for... How how many people or how many times it's been said over the years that Stock Aker Waterman songs are throwaway, simple, nothing little pop songs. When you actually have musicians learning the parts, and I've I've seen this a few times, they're actually they have to give it up and pay respect to that point because they realise oh these chords are really they sound simple, and that's the point of a pop record is to not make you think, just let you roll with it and enjoy it. But they were clever, they were really clever. And that's where we're going to leave the story of what do I have to do for now. So many mixes, so many versions, there was a lot to cram in, but we still have a lot of things to talk about. And we're going to do that in the second part of our What Do I Have To Do special. That's right, because the What Do I Have To Do legend isn't just about an amazing, perfect pop song. It's also about some of the most stunning and iconic imagery of Kylie Minogue's career. So we're going to be talking about the styling in her promotional campaign for this song. And we're going to talk about the video, which is one of the greatest Kylie videos. There's no controversy there. It is one of the best. And we're going to talk about the people who made it happen in the second part of the What Do I Have To Do episode. So don't miss that. We'll be back with you very soon. Bye, everyone.